Hey, friends and listeners, today's episode is a really remarkable one. It is with Dr. Peter Carnikin, and it's not remarkable for anything I did. It's really just, uh, it's, it is this experiment that we tried. We, we, we did this about 10 episodes in where we had my executive coach, Dr. Peter Carnikin, who is three decades of experience of of clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst, author, and now executive coach. In the last decade, he's quickly become one of the best executive coaches in Silicon Valley or one of the most sought after. I was introduced to Peter years ago by Alexis Ohanian, one of the co-founders of Reddit. And ever since then, he's been my executive coach and compatriot through through a pretty tumultuous journey of, of, of creation. And he's been there right by my side. He's, he's a phenomenal resource and friend and perspective in my own career that I felt like it would be cool to have him on the podcast every so often to go over his key takeaways from the previous episodes and his interpretation of them. We did that about 10 episodes in and listeners loved it so much. I'm doing it again now and we'll probably keep this cadence of about every 10 episodes, having him on to talk about his key takeaways and, and insights from the previous episodes. So I'm really excited for that. Also, we just started doing voicemails on the podcast where listeners can call in, ask a question on the voicemail on the hotline, you know, like it's literally like it's 2004. And I have have loved the questions that have been coming in. That number to call to leave a voicemail and, and you can leave any thought, comment, suggestion, or question is 510-214-3717. That's 510-214-3717. Leave, leave your voicemail there and we'll try to get to your question on the podcast. So thank you all for the support. And it's been funny to listen to uh, many of the uh, voicemails and, and really fun to answer the questions that people have had. You can find that episode in, uh, in any podcast app. I believe it is the last episode that we launched is, the, is our first voicemails episode. So feel free to call the number and let us know what's on your mind. So without further delay, let's get into it. Dr. Peter Carnikin and his key takeaways from the last 10 episodes. This is below the line. Peter, welcome back. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Man, this is uh, well. First off, the weird drink that we're sharing today <laughs> is Health Aid Kombucha Probiotic Tea, ginger lemon flavor. What do you think of that? I like it. Kind of tart, but the ginger's you know soothing. Yeah, I think I need. I, I'm not a fan of kombucha, but with uh, a little lemon added in, it's tolerable. <laughs> and that is like the coolest kombucha company out there, Health Aid. So a lot of people seem to like it. We will, uh, I'll see if it grows on me. All right. The The episode today, like we did a few episodes ago, is I'm, I love this, this concept of being able to just debrief with you mm-hmm. on the other side of, of these conversations with founders and creators. And, and now it's actually expanded to Grammy winners to artists to founders of billion dollar companies and and 
and people at the beginning of their career as well. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's the entire gamut of creators are yeah. starting to be. I'm really, I'm really excited to hear your insights after listening to, to the conversations. Yeah, cool. What you've gotten from, and uh, for listeners, Peter and I have known each other for years. He is my executive coach. He's my coach and, and psychological uh, crutch whenever <laughs> I, I'm going through issues. I reach out to him, and he usually um, pushes me off of being on leaning on him as a crutch. But it is uh, so. It's really cool to get to debrief not only with someone that I really trust. But for listeners, instead of like top moments of the podcast, it's it's basically a veteran psychologist, psychoanalyst going through <laughs> the the episode. So, but I I would say even from the beginning, I don't think you ever lean on me as a crutch. I don't think that's in your nature. And I think one of the things that you're talking about so much in the podcast, as I've been you know following these episodes, is people coming to the place where they can accept help not as a weakness, as a crutch, but as a form of power and strength and what I would call in some ways sane dependency. And I've never thought, oh, James doesn't want to deal with things. You always want to deal with things. You sometimes let yourself get some help with that, which is, I think, another strength. Well, it has taken... It's interesting you said last week I was chatting with a friend about how long and how hard it is to... I mentioned this all the time in the podcast, the book of what got you here won't get you there. Mm-hmm. And that concept of what has gotten you to one point mm-hmm. can be the very thing that, that limits you from reaching that that next point that you, you have in your mind. And I think for many founders, they're super resourceful. And I've always been pretty resourceful. And I think that's what made me a decent founder was just seeing these two or three things and seeing a way that you could synthesize or p- connect them in a way that maybe others hadn't. And and whether it was the product or finding investors or finding you know recruiting great team members around me, but but that resourcefulness is always it's a pattern of thought of okay, how can I fix this? How can yeah. I put these things together? And I am not good at asking for for help <laughs> and so it's uh it's been a pleasure learning that that skill with you because it's it is uh, something that i've learned is to ask early when it's a pebble rather you know the the phrase goes it's it's not the load on your back that weighs you down on the trek it's the pebble in your shoe <laughs> and learning probably five six seven years of doing it wrong before i learned okay ask for help when things are still pebbles small rather than being forced to ask for help because it's mm-hmm. it's breaking you down so mm-hmm. thank you for being a <laughs> compatriot in that it's such a pleasure how would you like to start this this episode yeah well i thought it would be good just to check in about how it's been to be doing this podcast it's such a you know you jumped in with both feet and start you've put out a bunch of episodes already and so you know you're on the steep end of the hockey stick already <laughs> And I thought it'd be interesting to say, you know, check in about what you're learning, what you're finding out, and where you want to take things from here. Oh, nice. So kind of, yeah, the below-the-line version on doing this podcast. Uh-huh. The, it's funny because it's also that. It was a, there was also a conversation last week with with the same friend, and this is where, this is, a, you know, the, the subjects overlapped a little bit, was just, it is... 
yeah, I I love doing this, mm-hmm. and I and I'm actually surprised at how much I'm I'm loving it. I'd say the biggest surprise from all of it is that it's I've realized it just is. I think overarchingly, I feel like I'm a little bit on a wave of just people interested in mm-hmm. the real versions of people's stories of, mm-hmm. of founder stories or these creation myths that after 10 years of hearing so many of them from companies and from founders and, and being like, that's not my journey. It's <laughs> not like my experience mm-hmm. that I think people are yearning for just the truth. I think that's, mm-hmm. so I think that that is the overarching statement is that it feels like there's a little bit of a, of a wave that, that, that I'm, just writing that I'm on that I'm not a part of, but people yearning for that. And then another wave around mental health in this this podcast in many ways is an exploration of mental health mm-hmm. and and investments in mental health, especially for mm-hmm. creators. And so those two things I think I'm not even a contributor in. It's just I'm riding that wave. So I'm just it's very it's always fun to start a creation and be like, oh, this is this is riding a wave of its own. That uh, those two things I think have been a little bit surprising uh-huh. at how much there's been a pull there. We're nearing forty thousand downloads, and that's in awesome. like three and a half months. So that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, but the I mean, it's yeah. interesting because you know if we rolled back the clock ten, fifteen years ago, when the whole kind of founder or startup thing was going strong in San Francisco, but I wasn't yet part of the world at all. I wasn't doing any coaching yet. And there were all these stories of brashness and people going big and crazy success. And I think there was a part of me that was like, I don't know if I like this coming to San Francisco so much. It's changing this town that I've loved and, you know, that is so awake and intimate and creative. And and one of the things I found actually as I've moved into the space and began coaching is that there are so many incredibly creative, thoughtful, deep people. And my experience in listening to the podcast is just expanding that like, wow, all of these founders, you know, they come in at one place, they go through this arduous and radical adventure of starting a company. And for a lot of them, it becomes a source of you know, if they're not going to get buried, if they're not going to become two-dimensional of deepening and expanding both their, you know, their their personal growth, but also their spiritual growth. And it really gives me much more profound optimism about what this wave of innovation is going to mean. Not only is it going to be a great wave of innovation of capitalist success, which we already know about, but I increasingly believe that there can be really, you know, great learnings that come about from from this experiment, and it's been a pleasure to hear all of these people. Well, that's that is a, that's an interesting perspective. I think I being in technology and being in in perhaps some of the most uh, ambitious trenches towards towards changing the world. I I'm. I'm so used to people being really deep thinkers, really mm-hmm. thoughtful about what they're doing, why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I've been really fortunate to to know and and be mentored by the I mean Paul Graham is one of the deepest philosophers I think of our age right now and he just happens to be a technology founder. Time, time to get him on the podcast. <laughs> that's right. 
he moved to England. <laughs> yeah. uh, he left Silicon Valley, but he's he's you know in one circle he's seen as the best, one of the best angel investors of all time in startups. But I think in within that circle, in that concentric circle for founders, they're just we're all enamored by how deep of a thinker he is. Same with Mark Andreessen. Same with mm-hmm. with Ron Conway. Same with a lot of the, the seemingly like you see them from one dimension of a financial side mm-hmm. and and forget that they got there most likely because of just a very different way of viewing the world mm-hmm. and the and then you you kind of get three inches away from from this this world or these founders and you realize that it's just the financial side is is not even remotely mm-hmm. a priority mm-hmm and that I think sounds to to many people that will sound cliche or sound lame or sound you can't uh, really Machiavellian. Mean that. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's the truth. So, mm-hmm. and I I see it every day that these that these thinkers are deep. But I do wholeheartedly appreciate that for people that own, and that's why I love this medium of podcasting because you can't have this long form. I think the creation myth of like. Oh, we were just in our dorm room and then boom, we had a billion dollar startup. The reason that that exists is I think that it's many things and it's not just the founder trying to spin a yarn. I think it's also the mediums in which you would tell your story, whether it's a blog post or a, you mm-hmm. know, a newspaper article first, now mm-hmm. tech blogs, you know, in a thousand words and 700 words, you really can't get that much depth out there, but you give someone two hours. Yeah. I mean, that's versus a 15 minute phone call that then goes into uh, an article in Fortune or Forbes or TechCrunch. You have someone two hours and you get to really hear yeah. what's below the line and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a great service to people out, not just in the tech industry, but people outside of the tech industry have a glimpse of what's really going on and some of the depth of what's going on. Totally, I think I think that is, the more information, the better, mm-hmm. because I, I'm I'm really proud of the the depth of thought that goes into the products that are being made, and yet we just get this. I think we're fed what we want to believe from the media perspective in so many ways, where we want to believe these big, rich uh, individuals and companies are evil. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, it's just that is not the case. There there is evil in the world, mm-hmm. but building a a social network with 2 billion users and and it leading to these byproducts of of real issues that we should mm-hmm. contend mm-hmm. but that's that's not evil yeah that's far from it yeah. and it is it's, it's it's human but we want to believe that it's it is you know just there is something insidious behind this accumulation of of wealth and that that model fits well with with um technology companies and founders i mean i think it comes back i was you know listening to your one of your more recent episodes where you were talking again about envy and jealousy and it's very hard i think to become aware of this new narrative where some people you know in five years they go from having five dollars to having five billion dollars not to feel envy about that it's yeah, envy. I mean, you and I have chatted about it. it's the dark yeah. matter of the world. It's yeah. it is the majority. I don't know what it is. I think dark matter is seventy two percent of the mm-hmm. the universe. 
We don't really know what it is. I think it's 72% of our environment is is envy. (laughs) And yet we never talk about it. We never, never open. We don't know really what we're envious of. We don't think deeply about it, but it's Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And being able to take, you know, what is reasonable in it. Like, I would like to have a billion dollars. I don't. Um, But to convert it from a destructive and dark and hidden force into a true curiosity. Like, well, how do people do that? Oh, what can what can come about from that? You know, it's a sort of deliberate transformation of the raw energy of envy into something ultimately more creative. And I think everybody you're talking about and you know, you're talking to in this podcast, they're showing so much their creative force. And so I, I, you know, I really hope listeners can take that in and say, how do I identify with that creativity rather than be daunted by it? And, and take in something, insights like Justin Kahn sharing four days of not being able to really get out of bed after selling a company for a billion dollars and realizing just how <laughs> that ain't it. Yeah. And what is it is, is something else yes. than this financial yeah. outcome. And the, so this podcast has been everything that you'd want a project to be illuminating, fun, connecting, mm-hmm. and, and most of all, just feels useful to people. People seem to find it really um, useful in their lives, at least the listeners that are, are taking a peek. The best way that I could try to describe this below line, and, and this friend was like, no, man, tell me the below the line version. Like, what has it really been like? Well, it's been a lot of work, um, a lot of work, obviously. But the the best way I can sum it up is it is one of the few projects I've taken on where it, the actual act just justifies itself. Yeah. The, I don't even know if this will make sense, but but there is no, it's not a means to an end. The means justifies the means like this conversation right now i wouldn't care if no one heard it <laughs> this is yeah i just know i'm at the place where i'm going to learn a lot from from this conversation with you and 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 mm-hmm. i also feel like if people do hear it then then they will mm-hmm. find it useful i think another overarching theme that i think i've i've stumbled in is i think there is beginning to be a bull market for truth mm-hmm and that in this past decade of filters and fake news, mm-hmm. there is the pendulum is swinging to that is now categorically bullshit, and now we know it mm-hmm. versus slightly suspecting it. Now we know it. Where is truth? And wherever that is, we want more of it. And I try to. I'm trying to be 100 percent honest with everything that I'm. Mm-hmm. saying on the podcast everything that I'm communicating and I think each guest is really really making a mm-hmm. really admirable effort at at the same of telling the real version of their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think when you say the means justify the means, you're you're saying that the very conversation is delightful to you <laughs> and that the quality of connection and discovery and perhaps even love that starts to show up, that rather than it being vulnerability as a form of weakness, 
vulnerability as a form of radiant presence. And what else would you be looking for? Like right here, right now. Yeah, this is, I remember describing Y Combinator as, as this really helpful program because it gives you the social convention for 90 days where you can work just day and night on your company. Mm -hmm. You can move away from your house from all of your friends and just work day and night. And similarly, a podcast has been, I tell everyone to start podcasts, it has been this amazing experience where it's a, now it is one of the few social conventions where it, it can be this experience where you put your phone away and it's an hour and a half. And I think I think many people have, have that have been on podcasts have have noticed that uniqueness. Mm -hmm. um, and I've touched on it before in this podcast, but that it is it is a it's like touching presence mm -hmm. from from every angle when when I'm doing this and it's really, really uh, I love it. But I also think that beyond my personal delight, I have gotten long emails from founders appreciating the mm -hmm. the content of the podcast and mm -hmm. that is you know when you get short little notes from friends or from <laughs> you might from other people it. yeah it's like okay well anyone can write something for mm -hmm. 15 seconds but these have been long yeah long essays on one founder of a company that that i think pretty much every listener would know was so burned from his last startup experience and he doesn't live in silicon valley so i don't think he has these conversations where he's able to hear the real story of other founders mm -hmm. and he just wrote me this long email about the podcast and a week later another long email saying all right i'm starting my next company <laughs> awesome. and that's uh so that has been that i think out of outside of my personal delight it's been it's been really great to be to feel like, okay, this is useful, even if it's for 12 people. No, I'm working with some new founders and they've listened to the podcast and they've said to me, that is so helpful because they're going up and down emotionally, they're having pivots, they're having stress. And it's easy for them to get into a mindset, if I'm doing this, I must not be doing it right. I must not be living up to an ideal. And that becomes another source of stress. It's it's stressful to be a founder, to start a startup, but it's even more stressful if you have some false fantasy of what the action figure version of a, a founder should be. And you think, oh, I'm not being that guy. But if instead you're like, oh, this is ordinarily and correctly difficult, and I am correctly struggling, then you don't have the added boost to the turbo boost of suffering you just have the ordinary suffering it is a topic for for an entire podcast at a later date but um but i've shared with you my the essay i wrote on the information pathology and just the world we live in now 20th century being dominated by uh, and and the majority of health crises actually being driven by an excess of food rather than a lack of food Mm -hmm. or deficiency in, in food and, and you have in the year we live right now in America, obesity, diabetes, um, heart disease being three of the top four biggest killers. Mm -hmm. 
And I think what we are likely entering in this century is um, the single most profound pathology being information-based and being access, having access to too much information and not having a, our biology is, is built, at least from what I hypothesize, built to accumulate information. It is, information is power. Shit, we were told that as kids. Information actually, I don't know if it is power <laughs> in, in 2019. And, uh-huh. and uh, there's a lot of assumption that it's, that it's accurate information. So why I bring this up is for founders that are early in their careers, m- one of my big recommendation, uh, recommendations is to shut off social media, mm-hmm. to not read the news, especially do not read tech news. Mm-hmm. It'll cost you five cents, but you gain a dollar. Mm-hmm. There is a cost. You will, won't be in the know on some competitive product, but I can just tell you from being hyper-informed. Mm-hmm. how that will cost you a dollar and you get five cents in return um, in contrast. Mm-hmm. And it's, I have a friend that's a, a YouTube creator and he creates stuff over the course of a year, but he won't ever go on YouTube or social media that entire year. Mm-hmm. He makes uh, music videos and, and kind of music um, informational videos. And so he won't, he will not pursue, he won't peruse any, social media while he's creating and then he comes back on and he'll promote for a year uh-huh. but it's um like he really separates his creative process from not helpful input right that's one of the first times that i've mm-hmm. heard about that concept and consider it for my for myself and it's funny i uh when i was writing my dissertation which became my book on psychoanalysis i was of all places living in salt lake city which is, you know, about as far removed from New York psychoanalytic thought as you could possibly be. And so there were no, I was reading Freud, I was reading, you know, all these psychoanalysts in the original, and I was young, I was only 30 at the time. Um, but there was something great about that isolation because I was really free to read Freud for myself and to come to my own ideas. And I think if I had been in San Francisco or if I'd been in New York at the time, I would have been way more deferential to more senior opinion. And while ultimately I wanted to bring that in and I wanted to be in dialogue with senior opinion, it was really vital to have a time to just dream up my own relationship to an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like building a ship on the sea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do that if you if you have mm-hmm. a choice of an alternative? Mm-hmm. So that's been the experience. It's been um, it's been great. It's it is. I've certainly seen uh, some you know five percent of critical remarks of feeling like the podcast is was too long or used too many ums. Or what we were talking about. That. Yeah, which I'm working on. But I know in in many years of creating things. A 95 and 5 ratios uh, is is really uh, that's special. So it's um, I'm thankful for the the uh, fun feedback on where to get better. Mm. But I'm also a very you know, much more thankful that it seems to be mm. seems to be something that people are enjoying and and uh, it won't please everyone. I think these topics are by 1,000 percent design <laughs> meant to be deep and long form. But it's it is so it's not going to be for everyone. But for those twelve founders that that are dying for mm-hmm. 
for access to these kinds of conversations. Hopefully it's valu valuable to them. So we talked earlier about saying, um, and I thought that was interesting that, you know, as you try to clean up your way of talking, that you're wanting to give more space to, to not say um is to allow deliberately a silence while you think what your next thought is. And I think in the our earlier version, we go, we always have to know what we're thinking and therefore we're always gonna fill space with the um or you as the youngest child of a large and raucous family, you know, you had to go, if I, if I let a silence go for a moment, I'm gonna lose my place, you know? Mm -hmm. and to allow the vulnerability of I'm thinking. Um, it, it is counterintuitive, but it creates a more deliberate sense of spaciousness, I think. That's why I love, I love critical feedback because it is, it is so helpful. It is so, and you, if you, if you come from a place of, of, security then you can sift through what's the bs or where is the just mm -hmm. perhaps jealousy or envy and where is it is it people wanting uh the best of you and on that um comment it was it was so for and for listeners this was a conversation that peter and i had where on one hand i was just kind of casting it off and saying you know this is that was kind of that's kind of funny to to hear and and I'm not a pro at this. But then on a deeper, much deeper level, it was actually really cool to, th to think through, okay, why do I say ums? Mm -hmm. And just to round out that thought, what Peter was touching on was, I think when I just sat back for 20 minutes thinking about, okay, why do I say ums? I think it is tied to being the youngest of five in a very verbose household. <laughs> where I knew that if I didn't hold my place with an um in the middle of a thought or halfway through a thought, then yeah, I would lose, I would lose that, that space to, to articulate something. And I think it's something that I want to deal with is and, and conquer is this need to control the, the dialogue, which I think, man, if you saw me 10 years ago, that would have been a disaster in that area. But it's always something that I can that I can fare even better on. Yeah, I mean, I think from a certain point of view, when we feel we need to control the dialogue, it's an idea that attention is a scarce resource and that people are going to grab the attention as quickly as possible. Whereas I think in the podcast, people are wanting to hear from you. And so they're going to be glad. You have to, in some ways, internalize the idea that they're happy to wait for you. They want to wait because they want you to complete that thought. Because at the end of your thinking, something good is going to arrive. Well, in my head, what goes through my head is actually there are so many podcasts that I, I love, but I hate when the host interjects so much. And so that is what I'm self-critically <laughs> trying to trying to avoid. <laughs> Well, this so hopefully as in a, a little bit of a peek in the below the line version of awesome. of of doing this, and it's it's been a blast, and hope I get to do it for for a, a little while longer. So, 
the next 10 years, to be honest. I really love it. Okay, so let's jump into some of your insights from the guests. And maybe we could start with the last episode or that we went over, I think was episode nine or 10. I think the first guest that we haven't chatted about was Ryan Hoover. Mm-hmm. And we could start there. When you listen to our conversation, what were some of the thoughts that came along? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I was really taken by him talking about how arduous it is to be a startup, you know, to do a startup and to say that there is, you know, in the contemporary culture, increasingly people aren't thinking, oh, I want to be a basketball star or a baseball star or a movie star. There's a new category of superstar, which is I'm going to be a founder. And the, the kind of heroic qualities of that and that that can capture people's idea of what they're up to. And that what isn't as publicized as much are some of the real stresses. And when he was talking about, you know, part of him was going back and thinking, would I rather take VC money or would I rather bootstrap? You know, there's an additional degree of freedom and time if you haven't taken on the obligation of Ex, you know, outside money. And then he, he goes on to say, you know, he, outside money with an intense expectation. Yes. Like you're going to grow 50, incredibly 50 fast, times. crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something that you went through big time. And uh, that he says that he doesn't think everybody should be a founder because you have to be aware that doing it involves sacrifices. You're gonna sacrifice time, you're gonna sacrifice maybe family for a while. But he also said, you might have to sacrifice, you know, not just your weekend, but your mental health. Uh, And that a reasonable and ordinary part of going into this super intense universe is that there are gonna be times you feel great stress. You're going to feel times of great anxiety. And you shouldn't kid yourself on the front end about that. Um, But that what I increasingly see in the podcast and as people are talking is that those are also opportunities. Um, There's one story that I love, uh, and it's about the guy who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. His name is Milarepa. And Milarepa definitely had a founder's mentality. He, he was a narcissistic guy, I believe. And so his teacher, Marpa, realized he had to really break him down. And he would say, build a stupa. That's like a temple. Tear it down. Build it again. <laughs> so he had to do a lot of startups before Milarepa finally had his great awakening. And he, he does. And he then bring, he goes up to Tibet. And that's why there is Buddhism in Tibet is because Milarepa came there. And it's at the end of his life, and he's up in a shack up on the mountain in retreat when his assistant comes knocking on the door. Milarepa, Milarepa, oh no, what should we do? Mara is here. And Mara are the forces of suffering that assail the Buddha right before his great awakening. And so, you know, the assistant's like, oh no, Mara's here. And Milarepa says, oh, my old friend Mara, show him in. Let's serve him tea. And what I've understood for a while is that the effort to keep Mara out only compounds suffering. If you try to keep suffering out, 
Mara's going to get really pissed and is going to knock down your door, break your windows, burn your shack down, and that it is much wiser to relax and let it in. But I had seen it mostly as a kind of inevitability question, that since you're going to feel it, relax, it's going to go better. But what I've come to see recently is that Milarepa is actually genuinely glad to see Mara. Right, so instead of, on one level, you could interpret it as, as okay, it's, it's coming, so just let it go, let it pass, and this too shall pass. But instead, on a, another level, you're saying, no, it's, it's, there's richness here. Mar- Milarepa has had so many encounters with Mara over his lifetime that he's come to realize something is good, good is going to come from this. I am always going to come away from my podcast conversation with Mara enriched. And so while there's going to be suffering and I'm going to have discomfort, I'm actually excited that Mara is here. Um, And I think that a lot of the people in the podcast are sort of saying, yeah, that they've, they've developed a kind of gratitude to what they went through, even though it was incredibly arduous. I can certainly relate to that. I, I, from having a mother that was bipolar to my sister passing away at 15 to three failures in startups in my 20s. I think there is there is a deep and seemingly foreign, or at least I understand it's foreign to most people, but a deep appreciation for trial and tribulation that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And it's not, this is hard to articulate, but to your point, it is not this will pass, but I actually, not that I'm, in any way enlightened, but there is a, there is this feeling of there's something good here. Yeah. Something rich here. Yes. And you, I I even, so I put down on my to-do list every day, I write down at the bottom and I write down God, family, community, work, Mm -hmm. work being fourth. And then right under that, increase courage. (laughs) (laughs) And and that being. I think there's a supplement for that, a crazy drink, courage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Maybe it's whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Increase courage by taking a shot of hard liquor <laughs> but the and that being the the mission behind a lot of what even this whole mental health exploration and and it's very different than than i mean i'm just in learning mode and as you know this is this whole project started as as the beginning of of research for for a book that i've wanted to write and on the mental journey of of creation but i think the one of the things that I think you're touching on that I, I also have started to see is people really have a, a dynamic relationship with trial and tribulation. Mm-hmm. And, and it's typically grateful, mm-hmm. at least the, the people that, that you want to learn from and that you say, wow, they've been through some, they've yeah. been through a lot of shit. Wow, there's, there is a strange, I remember, this is so, such a tangent, but Stephen Colbert talked about, his, I think his dad and two brothers died in a plane crash. And I'll never forget this because I think it was similar to, to he was 15 and, and when they passed away. And so I remember him articulating his experience in a magazine 10 years ago or something. And he said that 
it's it was an event that he never would that he would never wish on anyone, but he loved that it happened. Yes. And that even when I retell that story, I told that I've told that to to my wife and if even when I say that out loud, I'm already cognizant that this will not be interpreted. This will likely not be interpreted properly. To love that that family members have have passed, but that is the strangeness of the relationship that develops between mm-hmm. between an individual and trial and tribulation when when they see the other side of it and they see the richness of it. Yes, nobody can tell you if you've just had your family die. You should be grateful. It is only through a voluntary internal transformation that that could become authentically true as opposed to a bromide. But I I have, and I think for a long time I would have thought, okay, hardship comes in, you work your way through it, you learn something, wisdom develops, then you can be grateful. But in this other version of the Milarepa story, I've come to think that maybe part of what is a precursor to being able to learn from the hardship is beginning with gratitude. Like Mm. you don't have any idea how you're going to get through this. It's catastrophic. It is overwhelming. But at least having a, a minute light of gratitude as a deliberate act, like I don't know what will come from this, but I'm going to begin to try to treat this visitor as a welcome guest as soon as I can, because that is an internal state that will allow learning and the suffering to be metabolized more quickly, more fully, more expansively. I think listeners are starting to get a sense of why why you are my coach <laughs> and why I love I love having us as as a big influence in my life the the thoughts that come to mind are it's just so you see this in nature of a cat falling from the tree not bracing itself but losing itself mm-hmm. becoming extremely flexible mm-hmm. and and limber and doesn't break a bone mm-hmm. there's i i wrote, i know that uh, a friend of a friend was in a car accident and the reason they say he lived being after being thrown 40 feet was because he had fallen asleep drunk in the car. Had he not fallen asleep and been unconscious when he was thrown through, had he been conscious and braced, yes. then it would have been different. And it's, it was, I remember them describing it that way and just feeling like that was so counterintuitive. And, and then you reflect on it. It's like, okay, I can see how, mm-hmm. and they were so certain in the way that they described it, that he was alive because he was not, bracing himself or the the thought of of just the joseph campbell thought of the treasure you seek is within the cave you least Mm -hmm. least want to go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i think in that appreciation or that gratitude i think it's also you're also saying it's voluntary Mm -hmm. yes or it can be an orientation that i'm going to try to make all of my life beautiful, even the radically tragic and painful. And so, like if you think of a a mandala, like a Buddhist mandala, you have 
these circles and these geometric patterns, and there's often like gold leaf as part of it. And I've, I've begun to have an image that with some of the really difficult things, our task is to transform it into a mandala like that, that it is, that becomes beautiful. And then there's a way we can relate to it and talk about it that is expansive rather than grudgeful. People run- Voluntary instead of pain avoidant. That's right. That's right. It is, it is, nobody can tell you to do it. It has to be a genuine internal decision that I'm not doing this because, you know, the Bible tells me to do it, or my priest tells me to do it, or my Rinpoche tells me to do it. I'm doing this because it has come to seem true to me. Well, for listeners, a little below the line insight here is I had to take a sip of kombucha because I was about to shed a tear. <laughs> uh, because it's, um, and that's not, that's not hyperbole. The, I think that voluntary nature of going into that fear, going into that cave, mm -hmm. of letting go as you fall from the tree, mm -hmm. or letting Mara in and being delighted to let Mara in, I think is a, again, it's, it feels very counterintuitive, but each of the alternatives is that rigidity that breaks your bones. It is that pain avoidance that shocks you when you when you see it because you're trying to avoid it. It is that rigidity that doesn't save your life as you're thrown 40 feet out of a mm -hmm. out of a car. It's, and it brings me to you know just the biblical concept of he that will lose his life will save it. So Mara <laughs> have a We've fucking some... seat and we got some kombucha yeah, for you. Exactly. <laughs> It's, and I think that that is, you know, to what Ryan touched on and, and, you know, much of what Ryan touches on, it's not, it is not, none of it is glamorous, to be honest. There's not a single thing that he, that he talks about in this episode that's glamorous and, and feels like it's this thing that you cannot quit. And yet I know that he's, he feels extremely fortunate to have had that experience, but yeah, it's not glamorous. And I think when he says, you know, people should, not everyone should do this. My interpretation is until you're ready to know what you're getting into, mm -hmm. until you're ready to, at least in a light level, invite Mara in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Next up, we had uh, Sahil's episode. What an amazing man this guy is. Yeah, it's similar to Salt Lake. He's in Provo. <laughs> I know. I spent a lot of time fishing the Provo River, so oh, nice. I, I, I know it well. And so why do you say, what, why do you laugh and say what an amazing guy? Well, I mean, I love the title of his essay, How I Failed to Build a Billion Dollar Company. That's just, you know, he's got such a way with words to, you know, and he talked some about how he came up with that title. It's going to capture your attention. And it captures your attention because the idea that you failed to do something so ludicrously rare is kind of nuts, but it was the expectation. <laughs> um, and that to be a Muslim uh, from the East who comes to Silicon Valley and when your, you know, your funded startup doesn't go to say, well, what should I do next? 
I'm going to move to Salt Lake City. I mean, I'm going to move to Provo, Utah, and I'm going to enter a creative writing program, and I'm going to start going to the Mormon church. And I'm going to do that because I want to get out of the bubble, and I want to understand a wider swatch of humanity. And he did it with such kind of boldness and creativity. And one of the things that has struck me in listening to this podcast is, you know, in the start world, people talk so much about build quickly, iterate, test, you know, go to market, and that we're going to learn in this deeply empirical way. And we're going to learn how to build a company, how to build a product in that way. I've come to see that a lot of the founders who've done that for 5, 10, 15 years with their company, it becomes a habit of mind that they start to apply to themselves. And they start studying, well, how do I become a really good painter? Well, I'm going to generate a lot of paintings. Or how do I understand more about humanity? Well, I go to Provo, Utah and go to the Mormon church. Um, how do I... How do I measure my energy through the day? How do I get the best out of myself? Yes. How do I mm -hmm. how do I approach my social relationships with others? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so there is this kind of creative, experimental, pragmatic approach to life that is, I think, extremely postmodern in a way. It's not saying okay, everything that I need to know about how to live was held by one great thinker somewhere, whether that would be Christ or, you know, the Buddha or Muhammad uh, or within psychoanalysis, within, you know, we can say, well, Freud, he knew so much, I just really want to be a Freudian analyst, that people are saying, no, this is made up. Um, that we are actively, while well, we are born into a particular time and we're born into a particular body and biology, those are only the parameters within which we invent a life. And that we are therefore also creating, again, what might it mean to be a human being now? And I think all of these people, and, and Sahil is definitely an example, who are saying, I'm going to keep making this up. Um, mm -hmm. He's certainly not inherited a script. That's right. No way. No way. Um, he talked a lot about that he continues to struggle with the regret of having been employee number two at Pinterest and being brash enough and nuts enough in some ways to say, I'm leaving before my stock vests and I'm going to go start a new company. It was in some ways a... And for for listeners that might not be familiar with startups, that you get your granted stock, but you need to usually stay a cliff or what they call a cliff of twelve months to receive it, to start receiving it. And he was nine, he was nine months in, so three months away, and he calculates that he calculated it and figured out it was worth about thirty thirty to thirty five million dollars. Yeah, like, that he gave up. Right, and it's hard not to regret that. Um, I think deep down he doesn't regret it. I think, I, or I think he he questions the wisdom in regretting or not, and feels the the in, infectious attitude around him that he should regret it. Yeah, um, 
there's one saying that, you know, no regrets. And I actually hate that saying. So I was once walking down, it, I wanted a shirt with a tiger for a while. And I walked into a shop in the mission and there was this cool t-shirt with a tiger right on it. But it had this stupid headband on it that said no regrets. I'm like, oh man, I cannot buy that shirt because I hate that saying. You know, if you know about psychoanalysis, it's about really going deep into your experience to learn. Well, for someone that wants a t-shirt with a tiger, I'm glad you had some standards. <laughs> no headband. <that laughs> no, says, but this is what I did. No this is what I did. I bought the shirt and I inked out the no. So it became the tiger of regret shirt. <laughs> no. And it's great. ferocious. They're ferocious. But if they're related to honestly, they become a source of wisdom, you know? And he, I loved when he said, well, why don't I regret that I didn't buy Bitcoin? You know, I could have, if I had put $5,000 in Bitcoin at that same moment, I would have made even more than $30 million. And so he starts to de deconstruct a little bit, like he only regrets this one decision, but not this other decision, which would have been equally momentous. Mm -hmm. um, and that we are always living a life and making decisions under conditions of great uncertainty. And he couldn't know for sure at that moment what Pinterest was going to become. He had an idea, but so to allow regret in to learn from it, but to not have it go rancid. And I thought he was a really great example that he has studied it. He has to work with, you know, regret in some ways. Well, and you, you've mentioned to me before, wisdom requires regret. Yes, I think yeah. so. And so that is perfectly aligned with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe he really does genuinely regret it. It's, and I'm just projecting because I, but it's, it is, I think he regrets it, but I think he has really kept it from going rancid in any way. Mm. And he's done that really deliberately of saying, I don't want to keep mortgaging my present, my present moment to that one moment 10 years ago. Mm. That's, a, that's really a crazy thing to do. You know, it might have been crazy not to let the stock options vest, but it would be really crazy to waste the next 10 years of life having a bitter regret. Mm. And as opposed, he keeps coming back to, well, no, now I'm here writing stories. Mm. Now I'm here painting. Now I'm learning these new things. Yeah. All right. And then the next episode is Diana Chapman, who's a coach like you. <laughs> and yeah, really interested to hear your thoughts on, on that because it was all about executive coaching and, and you two are two of the best coaches and in the bay area so interested in your thoughts on yeah I, I really like listening to her episode and it was it was interesting to me because because we're in the same space i could go through some of the same envious responses that we've been talking about and listening to her because she's built a bigger brand she's got a whole program she's got a company i'm like wow that's so impressive oh i felt slightly envious and thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's it's and you nice, know nice below the line look. Yeah, well, even coaches yeah, can yeah, have some yeah, angst. Yeah, well, she's impressive. Um, but so I was monitoring that in real time. You know, a certain and then a certain cynical voice would come up in my mind, and I didn't want to give rein to that at all. I got that that was a small self version of me, but I was also 
notice that she was so authentically present with what she was saying that her way of talking also kept working to convert my envy back into admiration and appreciation. Hmm. So when she talks about loving to go into companies and talk about sex, I'm like, oh, that is so fantastic that a woman is coming into companies and saying, no, sex is all over the place and there's no getting away from it. We're not just going to go to some denatured political correct version. We're going to actually try to invent a way that sexuality can usefully exist in a company as opposed to destructively exist in a company. And I thought, that is so bold, so I also true, thought so that, fa- I, fantastic. Yeah, I also thought that was so so powerful just from the perspective of, I, I don't hear anyone talking about that. Mm-mm. And and yet so many coaches can stay within the the lame, just templated forms of what everyone else is saying and just be the mouthpiece that you're sitting getting coffee with today that's just parroting whatever they they know is within the the coloring within the lines and yeah she's like i'm gonna go way over here (laughs) and i'm not just gonna go a quarter step i'm gonna go all the way way. here and we need to address sexuality in the workplace because it is insane to act like it doesn't exist or to act like uh it is only destructive when when you really think of, of uh, in her words, I think she, she compared it to sexual energy being creative energy. For sure. And it's not just like attraction if you ban- to If you energy. banish it, then you've actually reduced the creativity of the place. Mm-hmm. Like that would be so tragic. I don't even know. I don't know what my view on it is, but I just love, yeah. I love the boldness of, of saying something in 2019 that, that one, we at least need to discuss it. And but two is is uh, and it's so great because I think only a woman at this moment can really be leading that conversation, right? If a guy comes <laughs> in and says, "Let's talk know, about sex, sex in the workplace," and that it's a good thing, people are going to go, "Oh, red alert, predator, predator!" You know, seriously. But for a really confident, powerful, embodied woman to say this, you can stop and go, "Okay, maybe there is some other version of it that is not." dangerous, predatory, but is expansive, welcome, and playful. I, I, one of the things that, that I've been pleasantly surprised by with the, the podcast is when I ask the question of what's something you rarely, what is something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about publicly, socially, or, or professionally, something you think a lot about, but, but rarely talk about. And, and the answers have been so good. <laughs> I remember Ryan Caldbeck just talked about the the amount of jealousy in the startup world mm-hmm. and that he had been in finance he had been a really good basketball player at duke mm-hmm. he had been a competitive athlete world of finance i think consulting maybe as well and, and he just said it's it still blows his mind how much jealousy is here yeah and power so much of of his own mind mm-hmm. which he was open and candid and sharing and and he can tell is powering like we we're saying, the dark matter powering mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. the environment here. The and Sahil mentioned gender and being something he thinks a lot about, but he can never talk about. It. And it's uh, even to this point, it's like 
I think for for the man can't have the conversation about sex in the workplace and in this environment. And in I think political correctness way, man can't have an opinion on gender. Mm-hmm. And you can try to regulate that in public forums, but it is impossible to eradicate that from from a human's mind to not have opinions on a topic as friggin' basic <laughs> as men as, and women as men and women. Yeah, yeah. It's it is, and I think this with Diana just talking about uh, sexuality in the workplace. That's she yeah. does talk about it a lot. Yeah. You know, and then she goes on to talk about helping people come above above the line. And for her, that means coming out of the shutdown defensive space into being a much more curious space. And she talks about taking 100% responsibility. Mm-hmm. That in any situation, it can be tempting to think, well, I'll be fair, I'll take 50% responsibility. I'm gonna be big-minded, and even though they did those bad things, I'm gonna try to take my part of the responsibility. But that is- Or I'm gonna let the person that should take the majority just take it all and just say, well, that was on them. Mm -hmm. They really should take responsibility rather than, hey, there's no convention that says you should take responsibility, but how can you still take 100%? Right, and that she's saying that going there, it's not, because you should, or that's the nice thing to do. She's saying taking 100% responsibility is what is best going to make your life more interesting, more expansive. There's, uh, you know, when I work with couples, I've come up with an exercise that I like, which I call 100% responsibility. And what I have, well, I have a couple do, you know, people often go, well, yeah, but then you did that and that made me feel this way. I like to have people take any incident and tell it twice. And in the first telling, you can tell it where it's 100% the other person's responsibility, including everything that happened inside of you. You said that and it made me feel this way. And then of course I shut down and then you did that other thing. And that's, that's a true telling. But then you come back and you tell it a second time and you tell everything that happened as your creation, including what happened in the other person. And, and to see that these two gestalts create a much fuller, much more three-dimensional understanding where there's much more opportunity for learning than in the thinner, more begrudged stance of 50% responsibility. Because if, you, if you're willing to jump into the curiosity of 100% responsibility, you have to begin deeply empathizing. You have to really understand, oh, I know a lot about their psychology and I could have seen this. And yes, when I did that, it reasonably evoked that feeling in them. And then you have way more agency. You know, it takes people out of the position of passivity, of victimization. I believe it was Eric, Eric Reese in one of the episodes also said, said in any given situation, there's 200% responsibility to go around. Yeah. 100% for me and 100% for, for the other person. And so at any point in time, you can take 100% responsibility. It's always available. Mm. Yeah, no, I thought that was, that was beautiful. I love that as well. Mm-hmm. All right, who do we have up next in the, the episode list? Matt McGinnis. Yeah. It was so funny to hear him go into his radio voice from when he was a teenager and just start 
Yeah, he's you know, a natural doing the weather. Yeah, yeah, he had a, he had a real. He could. He was well honed and well practiced. And even though it was long in the rearview mirror, you could bring that right back up again. Yeah, he has done many things in his life. He's had a a panoply of experiences. It's uh-huh. really uh-huh. really interesting. His background, and his story, and for for people outside of Bay Area, he's he's one of the best angel investors out here. But he's not super well known. But man, his episode is really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I love the Rumi poem that he has at the beginning of his journal, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly right now, but the essence is that that which you are meant to find, it has desire for you, that you don't have to so much engage in a massive effort of will to bring your life into being. You know, he studied clearly a lot of Zen philosophy, and he talks about it in that episode, that he wants to make, he wants to be deeply accepted of what is, and that the attempt to use will to reject the reality of what is, is always going to go badly. And that seeing that in some ways where you're going is calling to you, and that if you can tune into that, you may find the places where will is skillful, where like, okay, that does want me. I'm going to have to now use some willpower to get there, but I'm not fundamentally ignoring what is true. Mm. Um, and you know, he and it can be wind in your sails to accelerate where you want to go. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. and another of Rumi's concepts. What is what you're seeking is seeking you. Mm-hmm. That is, it, if you can believe in that, then you really can let go this this fear of not attaining what you seek because mm-hmm. you have this force much greater than yourself that's seeking you. It's coming to you. I, Terrence McKenna has this concept that he that we're not being pushed from the Big Bang. We're being pulled toward a force mm-hmm. much larger than we could ever imagine. And, and it is a reversal of thinking that is we're not just in a journey going to find like we imagine in these narrative arcs in our heads of, of stories we hear of being on a journey, traversing land, sea, to find trial, tribulation, to find that that treasure. But it's maybe it's the reversal of that, and it's the treasure seeking us. Rumi, uh, such brilliant, brilliant articulation. I mean, it's what you want in any poet yeah. saying what can't be said. Yeah, I you know I also am just struck. You know, he talks about being gay and his coming out story and that he, you know, part of being gay, I think, can often be a first experience of self-rejection. Like, please, and he says, I would, you know, pray every night to be other than gay. And then he he comes out and there is a great relief, but it is, I think it makes him all the more oriented now towards authenticity. And he talks about whenever he veers off from who he actually is, a certain alarm goes off in his signal and he wants to come back as quickly and as fully as he can to his own authenticity. And I think, you know, having grappled early on with rejecting a part of himself and then saying, no, that's not up to my willpower. That is the truth of who I am. And now I'm going to relax into that, and then new things will open to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was very, I was very taken by his depth and his willingness to really become a philosopher, to really lean into this. Mm-hmm. It's a great, great episode. And yeah, there's a lot of depth shared around those stories. All right, who do we have uh, next that that you wanted insights that you really enjoyed? Yeah. Um, well, then your next guest was Alex Snodgrass, who's got the the food blog, and you know she talks at a certain moment about that the role of what she's doing, like she shows up to do a meet and greet, and there's way more people than she thought, or you know she's going to do a talk in front of two hundred people, and this brief moment of going, I don't do this. And then the necessity of the situation asks her to expand into it. And that after having this happen a few times, she starts to relax into it and go, oh, I kind of do like it, you know? Right, public uh, speaking, that's, you know, that's one of the top three fears yeah, for people. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. scary and, and fantastic at the same moment, you know? Because on the downside, we imagine I'm gonna stand up and say something and it's gonna come across bad and then I'm gonna be publicly humiliated. Right. Uh, but when it goes well, we think we're gonna stand up and we're gonna get the attention that we've longed for for years, <laughs> you know, all in a concentrated dose. Right, <laughs> nothing of what you think. Yeah. I also really enjoyed what she said and mentioned, she talked about anxiety attacks and she mentioned that she makes a list every day of things that she needs to Stay healthy. Yeah, she needs to for her own mm-hmm. self-love and self-care that she has to check off. The power of lists is so hmm. it cannot be over it, it can't be overstated, at least in my life. I can tell you that the list of things that I did that day, the list of things that I want to do tomorrow just gets things out of my head <laughs> each evening. Mm-hmm. I no longer have to think about, oh, don't forget this, James. Don't forget mm-hmm. this. Don't forget about this. It is so powerful. A gratitude journal things that three to five things every morning that i'm grateful for mm-hmm. and it just starts to train the mind to one not have to f- remember things because you have lists that you're jotting mm-hmm. down and mm-hmm. you don't have to have paranoia of forgetting the list but the gratitude creating the pattern of thought of, mm-hmm. of okay these are this is how i'm going to start my day just think about what i'm grateful for and her list of these are things that if i'm out of rhythm Okay, look at the list. What have I not done? Yeah. It's, it can be five things, but it can be really powerful. Yeah, it's a kind of setting of attention. Like in skiing, there's a saying, you don't, when you're skiing in the trees, don't look at the trees. You'll crash into them. You want to look at the space between the, because that's where the fresh snow is. That's where you want to head. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think when she makes this list, she's saying, I want to ski that line. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going right. to go much, it's going to be much more pleasurable if I hit that line. Right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. And then I think next was Eric. Yeah. I mean, he's such a remarkable thinker. And, you know, it's a second episode with him. So kind of visited with him twice in, in listening. And I've been just so struck that he gets on this voyage of the startup that he's working on. And he's looking around going, okay, now how do I do this? Somebody must know how to do this. And realizing, wait, I don't think anybody knows how to do this yet. Or I can't find the manual of how to do it. I'm going to have to try to make this up. And he starts to run these experiments and think through this process. And that it's almost out of necessity that he becomes a philosopher of organizations and how to do this. Um, I think that's what leads to, you know, his book, The Lean Startup, 
And now he, he goes on to talk about, that. then he's thinking about how our companies owned and the whole problem of the conventional stock exchange and how it totally incentivized short-term gains but is destructive to true growth. Mm -hmm. And so he's thinking and thinking. He's like, well, okay, then there has to be a way to invent a new stock exchange. And he just keeps following these ideas with, uh, you know, relentless rigor and then finds an opportunity to do something that people haven't done before. He he talks about Nietzsche, and we've talked about this in the last episode that I had, that was who I studied when I was a philosophy major, and the idea of the overman. And when people hear about the, in German it's Übermensch, people can think, oh, that's some Aryan, terrible, you know, somebody is better than other people kind of story. And that's not really what Nietzsche meant by it. What he says is that there comes a moment in human development when we realize that all mora moralities are the creation of human beings and that they are created out of lived experience and guesswork and imagination. And that there comes a moment when rather than saying, okay, I'm going to align with philosophy A or philosophy B, you start to see, oh, I'm as much an author of what it might mean to be human as anybody else. Right. Uh, well, in the, the literal translation, German to English, it's, you know, it's over man. But I think, as far as I understand, many, many scholars would say the better interpretation is Superman. I don't and, like that one. Really? No, because that, that has too much of the grandiosity to it. Mm. I like Overman because in a way it's about over the pre, it's sort of more a developmental model. Mm. That there was one way that human beings oriented to meaning for, you know, X period of time and that we're now moving into a new epoch where a new way of creating value emerges. And I, th I thought Eric is a great example of it, you know, that he talks about the overman, but he's a fantastic example of it because when he says, I want to make a company that is the best place you've ever worked at, and I'm doing that not just generously, I'm doing it because if I can pull that off, we're going to get the best talent at this company. We're going to be able to develop really fantastic things. What I, I like about the the interpretation of Superman is is that there is, I, yes, I can see how it has grandiosity and sympathetic to that viewpoint. I think it also though has this built-in notion, and maybe this is just with the background of a postmodernist lens of like power struck, everything is a power dynamic over man sounds mm -hmm. like it's at someone else's expense um, expense mm -hmm. whereas the superman especially in american psychology evokes this concept of this this character that's willing to put all of his strength all of his strengths on the line for others mm -hmm. and that is ultimately i think what what my understanding of nietzsche was getting at is you choose your virtues for the virtuousness of what it provides to those around you and your community and you, <laughs> but it's um, it is certainly it is certainly interesting to think through. And I don't know where I land in this. You choose an ideal, like a figure, a historical figure that is that is greater than you ever can realistically imagine to be. That might also be 
mythologized to a point that you know it's greater than what you can be and that is the north star in which you yes. choose to move towards and and for christians i would be christ for buddhists i would be buddha and, and you say okay that's the ideal that's the north star that's going to guide what i want to be and then you have nietzsche coming along and and quite powerfully saying no we should choose you should choose your philosophy choose your virtues not just inherit them from others that can be its own podcast uh, conversation mm -hmm. its own right but it's it is a slight tangent but I, I don't know where i land in that i'm inclined to lean towards the latter that there's going to be messes made along the way as you stumble and learn but that that we should even raise our children by saying hey this is our ver this is my version of, of the world but i want you to grow up and improve upon it yeah i mean i love reading biographies I love reading biographies because I feel like these are owner manuals to virtuous beings. So Lincoln is my favorite. And I Which love- we've talked about before. Yeah, and I love to read, or I'm reading Grant's biography, Ulysses Grant's mm -hmm. biography right now. And so by all means, gather as much information from past creators as you can. You know, gather information from Christ, gather information from Lincoln and from Buddha and, you know, the whole panoply of people who've really figured something out. But then, having done that, have really absorbed it, then begin empowering yourself as somebody else who can creatively expand what it might mean. Because it's not a fixed quantity. It's not a done thing. We're still making it up. And that's what makes it more that's what keeps it alive. Otherwise, it would just decline into, you know, decay and static ways of being. Well, and in a, I guess, a deeper sense, even that former example of the the historical figure that you place upon the mantelpiece and say, okay, that is that is my ideal. A pretty central aspect of that figure is that they didn't do that. <laughs> they kind of saw what the the templates were and. <laughs> said it's not those aren't that isn't it that's right so christ, so christ begins of course by reading the whole old testament but you know but learning all about that and saying okay now i'm going to go out into the desert and i'm going to see something else about how i can relate to god you know the buddha goes off and he learns all he can from the ascetics and says okay that's pretty good that takes him a long way it teaches him how to meditate it teaches him discipline and then he goes, okay, but I got to take it further. <laughs> I would unquestionably hope my son, uh, my son's name is Bodhi, <laughs> an aspirational <laughs> name, yeah. you know, I hope he wakes up and I hope he takes it further. That would be my great wish for him. Excellent. All right. Who do we have next? Yeah. Well, what, maybe for today we'll, we'll end with uh, Heaton. Heaton. Heaton, Heaton Shah. Heaton right? Shah, yeah. You know, one of the questions you asked from him is, what do you love about being a founder? And he said, you know, you get to make your own decisions and learn from them, that there's a freedom. And in some ways that's counterintuitive, right? Uh, Ryan says, if you're a founder, you, can, you can't quit. <laughs> so that's the, uh, the opposite of freedom. And that's true. And I think Eaton would agree with that. But he's saying that there is a freedom to really think for yourself, to really have ideas and to put things into action and to not have to always conform to pre-existing structures. 
Yeah, it's actually quite aligned with uh, the last topic on choosing your virtues, mm-hmm. getting burned. Yeah, t- you know, burning your your hand by touching the stove and and seeing where, seeing where the edges are, and the beauty is you. You get to sit down and say, "I take one hundred percent responsibility." Yeah, you yeah. Know, you have the social conventional help that says, "Yeah." You got a hundred percent responsibility there, <laughs> and you are on the hook, <laughs> right? And that is the uh, the beautiful thing is when the social convention can can be a, a multiplying force in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It rarely is, but but uh, but sometimes is. And when you're a founder, you get to have that freedom and then live with um, the mistakes. Yeah, I mean, in that episode, you bring up moment from your own journey that you regretted that you're in a meeting and somebody's disagreeing with you and you somewhat impulsively say if you want to do that go start your own startup Mm -hmm. and as you've remembered it and as you've matured i think you've gone back and said that wasn't skillful right that was such a yeah i would have you know as a manager you want to if needed and when needed, you want to light. You want to light a fire under people. You don't want to light a fire in them. Right. And that was a complete boneheaded time that I, I still look back and regret. Where? Oh God! How asinine that would have come across. Right. So Adam Phillips, who wrote the book Going Sane, at the end of it, he says, "You know, the last word in his book on what sanity is." He said, "The sane never knowingly or dedicate." whatever resources they have to never knowingly humiliating another. And I think in that moment, you humiliated him a bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And in humiliation, we want to shrink. We want to go and hide and never be exposed to that kind of scornful gaze again. So while it is a very effective teacher, it is a teacher of smallness and invisibility rather than a teacher of true understanding. Mm-hmm. And it, and the nature of shame is that it replays itself over and over again. So you you make one mistake, and if you have shame, you replay that one terrible moment about a thousand times so that it is deeply etched in your unconscious, never do that thing again. Mm. But it has, but there's nothing discerning in it. It is a very primitive version of, of learning. Um, yeah, learning that the fire is hot rather than how to make a fire. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, the, the, I remember him, him talking about how, you know, I was talking about where I was embarrassed mm-hmm. with my misuse of, of authority. He was talking about how he had gotten to a point where he was fine with being called a tyrant for those two weeks. Yeah. I think he told a story about him being called a tyrant for two weeks earlier in the year yeah and he was fine with it yeah and for them for him that was a really big moment to be fine with that and to not always have to be pleasing everybody and always be liked and i think that there's a difference like when he i think he would agree that during those two weeks he was being critical and aggressive i doubt he was humiliating anyone yeah but i think he wasn't humiliating he was saying no come on let's wake up we really have to have greater accountability right and so that's why even though maybe it pissed some people off it was maybe not a perfect use of authority on the whole it was still a useful version of authority right 
I love that you bring up that quote at the end of Going Sane, and you and I have chatted about it before, an mm -hmm. entire book on, you know, there's so much, and you've mentioned this to me, there's so much written on insanity mm -hmm. and, uh, and disorder when mm -hmm. it comes to cognition and, and mental ability. And, and there's finally a book dedicated to sanity, yes. Going Sane, and, and you, you mentioned or, and you touch on that last and the last line of the entire book on going saying those, do you mind saying it again? Yeah, it's so surprising. I mean, that's why it stuck with me so much. You might think sanity is incredible creativity or, but no, he says the sane dedicate whatever resources they have, never knowingly humiliating another. And it is, it is a profoundly compassionate statement that, that we burn so much goodwill we create such damage to others when we humiliate them but therefore also to ourselves because people will never trust you to the same level again if you have engaged in that unless there is some way to really make deep amends mm -hmm. for that moment of violence yeah there's going back to to mara coming to visit when <laughs> when people will try to embarrass others, at least now and in, in, in the stage of life that I'm in, it is, you see it either on, you see it in, in different realms of life, in many realms of life where that is taking place. And I see it between friends back, I, I've seen it recently between friends back home in, in Dallas. And there's just so much, um, not that I'm a beacon of, of, of real understanding of this, but there's there's just a sympathy for oh that's gonna burn them. Mm -hmm. This is just, and I think you also get to a place where either you've hurt others enough to where you know how much it hurts yourself to hurt others that you have that that sympathy or that empathy. But you also, it is when someone is trying to hurt you, you kind of just in a Christ-like sense turn the other cheek, not because you're going to acquiesce to to uh, um, subservience, but it's because that actually is probably the only way if you care about that person to change them. Mm -hmm. But also because there's equal parts understanding of just let them fall on their own sword. Yeah, like this is this is uh, someone trying to embarrass another. You really can just sit silently, <laughs> let things work themselves out, and and karma becomes a total B. It's one of the deep sources of confidence. If you know that you treat people kindly in a rigorous way, not just when it's convenient, but that if you, to the best of your power, have a standard of treating people with kindness, and it doesn't mean you wouldn't sometimes get mad, it doesn't mean you wouldn't sometimes criticize or get angry. Be it seen as a tyrant in Eaton's example. But that if you're, if you're in intention and your intent is to be kind and respectful to everybody, then you know when you walk into a room that people are likely to be glad to meet you. And that's, that's a real foundation of confidence. Mm. I also want to touch on something that he mentioned that was really great, which was that I thought about for two, three weeks later, which was that concept of he talked about his his fear of abandonment that was instilled to him that he 
really mm-hmm. took his, until his late 30s until he really saw, wow, so much of what is at my nuclear core and mm-hmm. all of my pursuits is this um, f- deep fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And and he talks about that in depth. And his episode it stuck with me for weeks, just thinking about just reflecting on my own childhood and thinking through, all right, what are some of the psychological patterns that were formed early on that are in that subconscious yes. that are driving driving decisions and, and driving pursuits of mine? And how can I make them conscious and understand them? But also, how can I understand just why I'm doing what I'm doing right now in a, in a deeper sense? And it's, it is really... Yeah, that has stuck with me. I I think it's there's I think for many founders, fear of abandonment is is a big part of their subconscious. For many human beings, <laughs> for many, yeah, for many human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the m- misunderstandings of psychoanalysis is that it's all about going back to the past and somehow, okay, we're going to blame the parents or, you know, we're only going to get lost in the weeds of the past. I think a good therapy or a good coaching experience is twofold. One is you want to take a deep enough inventory of who you are and how you got there. And that looking back is a way of bringing deeper understanding of who you are, but also of loosening some of the constrictions of who you are. If you see, oh, I learned that in that emotional situation, you may come to see I'm in a different emotional situation now and so I actually can relax that organization. And that having relaxed old organizations, then there's much more room in orienting towards the future of saying, now I'm going to invent new versions of who I can be. And it's, there's more space, there's more, you know, going back to the analogy of the cat, more flexibility for bringing in new things that aren't in some ways just veneered over the top of the old rigidities that they can, because the calcification of the past personality is softened, they can really extend deep. They can Mm -hmm. be true new manifestations of who you can be. Integrating that shadow. (laughs) Well, Peter, thank you so much for, I know, I wish we had more time. Um, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and, and to listen to these episodes. Thank you so much for for sharing the insights that you've taken away. It's really cool to have a third party that is clinically trained in all of these areas, um, listening and jotting down thoughts, insights, and, and takeaways for listeners and also for myself. Thank you. Well, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for doing this, James. Looking forward to the next one, and we'll get to the episodes we didn't get to uh, in the next one. Great. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that, that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on below the line.
below the line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.